For today, here's what we're, uh, what we're getting into, Isaiah chapter 9 and Philippians chapter 2. Let me just put a question out there um, as, as you find your places, or if you just want to take a look at the screen, it'll be up here. So if you were to be asked to explain Christmas in just one word, what's the word? I mean, there's a lot of things that could come to mind. I mean, you can kind of give like maybe a more cultural answer. You might say decorations, parties, baking, cooking, gifts, Amazon, chaos. A lot of different things might come to your mind. And hey, those are, those are fine and fair answers. Uh, there might be maybe, maybe something just straight out of the Bible. You might say, hey, it's about peace. It's about joy. It's about hope. It's about love. It's about grace. Great answers. It's about generosity. All of those are, are, are great answers. Uh, none of those are bad answers. I would, I would suggest that there's actually a bigger answer than any of those things if you just get one word. And this is uh, the, the one word that makes all those other words possible that you would use to explain Christmas, all those other ways that you would enjoy Christmas. And it's not one great thing, it is one great name. And it's the name Jesus. Jesus is what Christmas is all about I want to share a quote from uh, a theologian named J.I. Packer. The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon, hope of peace with God, hope of glory, because at the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross It is the most wonderful message that the world has ever heard or will hear. If you were to simplify what Packer is saying, it would just be that Christmas is possible. This most wonderful message is true only and because of the name of Jesus Christ. And so in this season and throughout this series, what we're doing is we are are peering into the manger It's not of something, but it is of someone. And this is the one whose advent caused angels to rejoice, caused Mary to wonder, caused kings to shudder, caused caused shepherds to worship, and wise men to seek. And so all of this is coming to us through the lens of Jesus's great name, which is what Christmas is all about. So Isaiah chapter 9 Come 700 years before Jesus actually arrived, before his advent. His advent, and what happens is he promised uh, God promised through a prophet that he would come and he would bear four great names. And I don't know about you, but uh, my heart is just being overtaken with with wonder at the grace of Christ by just looking at these names. It's a fascinating study. It's a fascinating way to look at the beauty of the gospel is through the lens of how is Jesus our wonderful counselor. How, we saw that last week. How is Jesus all these things that we're about to read? So Isaiah chapter 9, 6, let's read it together. And if, you, if you're able to, just read it off the screen with me. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Now, this verse right here, if I ever did see one, is a coffee cup verse. Man, you could put that on a coffee cup and be comforted over your coffee just by looking at that. This is the type of thing that would show up on a Pinterest board, absolutely. Uh, It's just a comforting verse. It's these great promises. Here's what we miss about it, though. Are you ready for it? These words are spoken into a frightening wartime conflict. Let me just give you a quick review. So the great nation of Assyria has become the most dominant empire in the world, and their military is marching toward Jerusalem to take over. And so naturally, the nation of Judah is worried. And let me just ask you this. What has you worried today? What was that thing that your mind just effortlessly went to on the way to church or as you were waking up or as you were going to sleep? What is it that has you really worried where you feel like you don't have control? Well, in the moments where we worry, God has a word. And what God is about to do is he's going to give a word to cover the worries of his people thousands of years ago. But I just want to tell you before we see this word that comes from Isaiah to a king, I just want you to know that God has a word for you today. Whatever that worry is that you have in your life, God wants to speak a word about, hey, maybe it's something that you're not. Well, he surely is. Maybe it's something that you need. Well, he already has. And on some level, that's what it means for God to be our mighty God. God has a word for you today if you're worried. But the nation was worried. And what happens is God sends his prophet Isaiah to counsel, even confront, uh, a worried uh, and faithless king by the name of Ahaz. And so basically Isaiah tells Ahaz, hey, Ahaz, instead of looking to these military alliances, instead of you looking to the earth for help, why don't you look to heaven for help? Why don't you look to the God of angel armies instead of an alliance of earthly armies uh, to move in power? I think he's proven faithful up to this point, wouldn't you agree? I mean, remember that whole, like, out of Egypt crossing the Red Sea? Remember the walls of Jericho coming, tumbling down? Remember this shepherd boy just failing Goliath? I mean, he's proven faithful before. He'll do it again if you ask him. And then King Ahaz, his response is pretty shady. I just want to tell you guys. He, he basically says, I don't want to ask God for help because if I do and he pulls up, then I'm going to have to obey. So instead, I'll form an alliance with Assyria and see how that goes. And it's just like, what a Grinch. I mean, seriously, like we don't even know about Christmas at this time. It's like, you're the Grinch who's still in Christmas. And so one would expect Isaiah to just go Clark Griswold after not getting a Christmas bonus on King Ahaz right here because, I mean, there was a need. This is justly frustrating. King Ahaz felt it. Isaiah felt it. Israel felt it. Judah felt it. And what was that need? Well, the need was a king and a kingdom that was mightier than Assyria that was mightier than the nation of Judah, who would wage war on their behalf and win. And yet the king is too proud to pray for help. And it doesn't go well (laughs) at all. They end up being subjected to Assyrian rule and eventually exiled in a far-off land. And it's just a picture of what happens when we try to meet our needs and our own power without involving God What we're supposed to see right here in this promise is that it's only as we call upon God's name for help that we see those needs, those pressing needs, those things that worry us actually met. And that brings us to the significance of this ancient Christmas prophecy in Isaiah 9, 6. Because what we're doing each week of Advent is we are coming in close on one of these four great names that are disclosed to Isaiah, that are pointing to Jesus 
And last week, we saw how the wonderful counselor is, is, is ready and willing to turn the mess that we make into a miracle. And, and what, what's so special about him as the wonderful counselor is that he actually gets us and he's able to guide us. And he wants to do that if we will just come to him. But today, what we're doing is we're fixing our focus on Jesus as our mighty God. Mighty God. Everybody say mighty. Everybody say God. He is our mighty God. And that word mighty, it means warrior. One who is quite literally unstoppable, undefeated in battle. There's so much significance to this. And then there's the word God. I don't want to just move past, past that because there is a God. There is a God. He is there. He is not silent. He is there and he has acted valiantly and sacrificially stepping into history. And he is not the false God of Islam. He's not the false gods of Hinduism. He's not some woke state of mind. He is not Mother Nature or gods of culture such as power, popularity, and pleasure. No, we're dealing with the one and true, eternal, righteous, Trinitarian God of the Holy Scriptures. He's not one among many. He's the only, and He is the Almighty. Father, Spirit, Son, God, three in one fully revealed to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But what is it that makes this God, the God, it's only one God, so almighty? I think that's a fair question. I don't want to assume too much. So let's talk about this. What makes God so almighty? And here's what I want to do. I want to just take you on a short survey of the scriptures, and I want to give you a vision of the mighty God who wages war for his people and wins every time. He's undefeated. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Now war arose in heaven. Michael, that's the archangel, and his angels fighting against the dragon. That's an analogy for the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back. Okay, so Revelation 12, this is actually a Christmas text. It might not be the one that you want to read to your children before you go to tuck them into bed at night, all right? Let me just tell you that. So disclaim, pastoral disclaimer around that. But what's going on right here, the context of Revelation 12 is this cosmic conflict, which began before the foundations of the earth and then escalated at Jesus' birth. If you actually do go and read it, you'll see how he's talking about the birth of Jesus and how that escalates the intensity of the dragon's attacks against the gospel and against God and against his people and it's trippy, man. You go, you go and you read it like this is actually what's going on. And it describes what was happening in the unseen realm before Jesus' birth, at Jesus' birth, and since Jesus' birth. And the story of history, what it tells us is that it's a, it's a war story. It's an actual war story waged between God and Satan, good and evil, darkness and light. And it begins in the unseen realm and it impacts everything about what we see. For example... And I know this messes with our progressive modern sensibilities. How can you believe in something that you don't see? Well, uh, the wind would be an example. So there you go. We've dealt with that. The wind has an effect. You don't see the wind, you see its effects. You might not see the devil, but you see his effects. So hatred, violence, lies, divorce, division, despair, racism, prejudice, 
that riddles society, it's all, hey, don't be deceived. It's all the result of this cosmic conflict being waged in the heavenlies. All that you see is actually being impacted and enabled by what you don't see. And here's the hope of Isaiah 9-6. The rest of the scripture, even, this mighty God, he is our strong defense. He wages a just war against the forces of darkness, and he wins. He makes dark things light and wrong things right. Exodus 15-3, let's just survey some scriptures. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. I want a coffee cup with that verse on it right there. Exodus 15, 3. Psalm 24, 8. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Psalm 46, 9. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Stop right there. What is the way that God makes wars cease to the end of the earth? This harkens to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations to the ends of the earth. So the weapons of our warfare is discipleship. It's witnessing. It's bringing the peace of Christ into places and spaces among peoples who otherwise are riddled with division and despair. It's the weapons of heaven, not the weapons of earth, whereby we win this cosmic conflict and reign victorious with Christ. I'll keep going. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-4, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy addiction, bitterness, resentment, greed, pride, prejudice, hatred, violence. That's what the weapons of heaven have the power to do. Unleashed in Ephesians 6, 11, we must therefore put on the whole armor of God. And let me tell you this, it's, it's actually very simple what the weaponry and the armory of God consists of. Notice that Paul already established, hey, it's not the way that, that we fight according to human terms. God fights with different weapons, and he gives you different armor. And so the helmet of salvation, what, is, what does salvation do? It reminds you that no matter what atrocity the devil introduces into your life, there's no such thing as a defeated Christian. Because I know where this is heaven, because I've been rescued for all eternity. The, the, uh, think about uh, the breastplate of righteousness. So what that's going to do is that's going to enable you to walk on a right and just and true and good and noble path, even when everybody else around you isn't doing it, in a way that honors God and blesses people. And then truth, um, the, the shield of faith, the belt of truth, the belt of truth. So there's a lot of believable lies that we're being told and sold, right? But the weapons of righteousness is actually knowing the truth so that the truth can set us free from those believable lies. And then there's the shield of faith. I have active confidence that no matter what comes my way, no matter how the enemy may assail me or attack me, that God cares and he's in control and that's what counts and that's faith. And then there's the sandals of peace. We step into war. We step into conflict. We step into chaos. And what do we bring? Because it's on our feet. It's the beautiful metaphor. We bring peace. Where the gospel goes, peace goes. That's the whole armor of God. And that's how God fights. That you may be able to stand. This is the only way you can do it. Against the schemes of the devil. 
And when you stand against the schemes of the, de- the devil outfitted with the armory and weaponry of heaven, he doesn't stand a chance. Not only does Jesus, our mighty God, wage the war, he wins the war. And what does he do? He credits his forever victory to us by faith. And that's why when we side with him, not against him, but, but with him, through repentance and faith, here's what we get to do. We get to fight from victory instead of for victory. It's a big difference. It's a big difference. It's, it's the difference between feeling defeated and actually being defeated. There's no such thing as a defeated Christian. It's just the feeling that you're defeated. It's, the, it's losing sight of the living hope. But we know where this is headed. Romans 8, 31 and 37, we can say this with Paul, who understood this great victory. What then shall we say to these things? These things, you name it, suffering in life, attacks on our identity, condemnation over sin. Verse 37, if God is for us, who can be against us? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Romans 16, 20, I love this one. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How does he do that and why does he do that? Because the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. And it's mightier than any suffering you've faced or sin you've, you've committed or that's been committed against you. Revelation 17, 4, or 17, 14. They, that is the henchmen of hell, the enemies of God, those who resist the gospel, those who reject the one true God, will make war on the Lamb. You felt that? Is that real? Is that true? It's all around us. And the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. I want to tell you something about church history that might help your heart. For the first three centuries of church history, the main message to the church amidst what so often felt like defeat was what's called Christus Victor, Christ our Victor. And what kept the church going through persecution, through distress, through, through being ostracized, was this big vision that Jesus wins and that we're with him, so this does not end in defeat, it ends in victory. And this victory, it's handed to us through faith in his resurrection and eternal reign. I want to share a quote from a, another theologian, Michael Bird. I love this. Satan's force is spent. His worst was no match for the best of the Son of God. The fatal wound of Jesus deals a fatal blow to death. The powers of this present darkness shiver as the looming tsunami of the kingdom of God draws ever nearer. This is Paul's atonement theology. This is the victory of God. And what makes this victory so mighty? What makes Jesus our almighty God? Well, think about it this way. Um, when an American soldier goes to war and carries out a mighty act of valor and sacrifice, they are awarded what is known as the highest military honor available, and it's the Congressional Medal of Honor. And it's awarded to those, if you start looking at you know, who are the recipients of this, often are no longer alive to receive it because the sacrifice was so great. It's awarded to those who risk their life or give their life to save the lives of others. Think jumping on a grenade. 
think running to the aid of, of their, their, their fellow wounded soldiers amidst gunfire at the risk of their own life. And so I just want you to think about this in military terms. The eternal medal of honor belongs to Jesus. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And the difference is, the difference is that Jesus died for his enemies, not just his fellow soldiers. I think Romans also talks about how, you know, it, it would be one thing for someone to die for those that they love, it's, or for those that just like love them back, their family, their friends. But it's another thing for someone to die for their enemies, and that's exactly what Jesus did. It's how he sacrificed himself to rescue us, not just to defeat his enemies. And so what makes Jesus the almighty God? I want to show you two things right here. What is it that makes Jesus the almighty God? Jesus is almighty God. Here's why. Because he came in a lowly way, and he came as the only way. Jesus is almighty God because he came in a lowly way, and he came as the only way. And I want to take those in that order and share with you how Jesus is almighty God because he came in a lowly way. So if you will, uh, start flipping over to Philippians chapter 2. So starting out in Isaiah 9, and then we surveyed all these scriptures. Go ahead and flip over from Old Testament to New Testament over to Philippians chapter 2. What's beautiful about these verses that we're about to read in Philippians chapter 2 is how we're, we're told that apparently this was the earliest known church hymn that would be sung at Christian gatherings. And so Paul was likely pulling and quoting from this song, this hymn, that the church would sing to be reminded of a few things, to be reminded of Jesus' lowly birth, to be reminded of his substitutionary death, and to be reminded of his victorious resurrection and reign and rule over all creation. And so we see how this hymn begins in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I want to show you what it looks like. Who, though he was in the form of God, though he was mighty, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he became lowly. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So I want you to see this, that Jesus, our mighty God, emptied himself. He was born in the likeness of men. Here's a way to think about it. The infinite became an infant. The infinite became an infant. As the song goes, in Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe. This is what we call the incarnation. It's God becoming fully man, yet remaining fully God. There's a false doctrine that says that he was like, oh, 50% God, 50% man. No, that's, that's false doctrine. We reject that wholeheartedly. He was fully God and fully man. And you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. Well, if we could make sense of every part of God's character, wouldn't that make us God? There's clarity and there's mystery. Faith holds both in, both in tension. And the Trinity is the great mystery. We, as A.W. Tozer said, we kneel outside the doorstep in awestruck reverence. Or J.I. Packer, I love this. 
God wrapped in flesh to dwell among us should not be reduced to a marvel of nature, but rather seen as a wonder of grace. The question is not, how could he do that? The question is, how could he do that? Do you see the difference? And this sounds contradictory, but it messes with our sensibilities. How does the Almighty coming as lowly make him all the mightier? Well, if you think about it, um, when the mighty use their power to make those beneath them feel weak and worthless, what do we call that? Well, an abuse of power. And it actually makes those in power look less powerful. So we know this, that that happens with an abusive parent, uh, an abusive spouse, maybe the bully who uses their strength to harm rather than to help. However, when someone who's mighty humbly gets on the level of the lowly, then how do we look at that person? Well, they're even more powerful. And what's, there's a word for that. Yes, it's humility, but it's also meekness. See, meekness is not weakness. That's what the world will tell you. Uh, the truly mighty are truly meek. And we know this because the mighty God became meek. And so if you meet someone with great influence and all they do is snub you, you like them less. You think less of them. But if they're humble and they're relational, five-star review. I I mean, I'll follow you to the end and back. I like you even more. And one of the ways that we've talked about this before that's just really helped me understand this whole idea of a mighty God becoming a lowly baby is that moment when the parent gets in the floor to play with the little kids. What's happening in that moment is the parent is subduing their strength. The parent is, in a literal way, laying aside their glory to get on the child's level, to step into their world, to be like them. And now I want to understand, because, or I want to say this, it doesn't stop there, okay? We do. We get into our kids' world, but we also need to call them up into our world. And Jesus did both, but the incarnation was getting down into the world of the kids who could never access him otherwise. The resurrection was calling us up into his world that's better than anything we could ever ask, think, or dream. And so the incarnation is God getting in the floor to play with lowly kids who would never have access to him otherwise. And I've shared this with you before. Psychologists say that one of the greatest indicator of a child who grows up to flourish is a parent who actually got on their level. And that would make sense because it's the pattern of creation. The good news is that God Almighty did this. The Almighty came as lowly so the lowly might be lifted. And this is what Isaiah is prophesying all those years ago when he said the mighty God. Would be, would be born. And this is what Isaiah was prophesying. This is what Paul is describing. This same mighty God would empty himself. And what do, we, what do we think? How do we feel? How do we respond? It's a wonder of grace. It is an absolute, more than a marvel of nature, it is an absolute wonder of grace. So Jesus is almighty God because he came as lowly. But secondly, Jesus is Almighty God because He came as the only way. Not only in a lowly way, but He came as the only way. 
So there's a scene in what might be my favorite Christmas movie, Christmas Vacation, where Clark has tirelessly worked to get 25,000 lights up on the house. And you're like, how do you know it was 25,000 lights? I estimated. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, I looked at Wikipedia, and that's what it said. So the, the, the big moment comes. Clark, he's got all these lights up on the house, and he's just ready to wow his family and wow his neighbors. And so he brings them all outside, and womp, womp, womp. He causes an electrical shortage for all of Chicagoland. And so he's visibly frustrated and frantically tries to get the lights to come back on, but there's a problem. And if you've seen the movie, you know what it is. It doesn't matter how many outlets he inspected or cords he connected, he can't get the lights to stay on in his own power because there's only one way to get the lights to stay on. There's a switch in the utility closet. Christmas tells us that we're all a bunch of Clark Griswolds who tirelessly and frantically attempt to keep the lights of peace, joy, hope, love, grace, generosity on in our life, in our own power. And sometimes we get them to flicker, but they will never stay on. The two most basic ways that we try to keep the lights on in our own power, that we're a lot like Clark, are, uh, we've talked about these before, but I'll, I'll give them to you maybe in a fresh way, rebellion and religion. So rebellion, rebellion says break all the rules. This was King Ahaz. This was Israel. This was Judah. And the, the sacking of the nation of God was a consequence of their rebellion against God. It was, it was just judgment. So what, what happens when all of the limitless living, all of the free-for-all doesn't work? Well, we actually, we, um, we see examples of this all the time, if you're just you know, paying attention. Um, it's in culture all the time. Maybe you've experienced this before. Maybe you've lived a life of rebellion before, and you're like, that didn't work. That left me empty. But um, I, I recently heard about an OnlyFans model who started boasting about how she had slept with 300 men in one year. And it was like something that she was trumpeting, saying, look at me, it, it, it gave me satisfaction, it gave me meaning and purpose. But then she turned right around in this interview and she said, but now I want to get married and settle down. And hey, you know what? Pray that that happens. But the point of this example is that you can give yourself to yourself completely with, with no filter, with no restraint, and you can seek all the pleasure in the world that, that you could ever experience. And what happens when you go against God? It leaves you empty. And you end up wanting the very thing that God said was good and beautiful from the beginning. And I don't know, maybe it, maybe it has been something sexual. Uh, maybe it's a substance. Maybe it's just that adrenaline that you get from success. Or maybe it's stuff. Whatever it is that you're giving yourself to in rebellion against God is ultimately going to leave you empty and it's going to come back with some consequences that are very unpleasant. It doesn't keep the lights on is the point. But then there's religion. Religion is keep all the rules. If rebellions break all the rules, religion is keep all the, the rules. And this was Isaiah. Uh, see how that went for him? Go back to Isaiah 6. He's convicted before the, the holiness and the throne room of God. 
And he's like, I can't even stand in the presence. And here's what religion does. Religion mistakes God with Santa Claus. God doesn't reward us for our good behavior any more than he punishes us for our bad behavior. He's not making a list, checking it twice, trying to find out who's naughty or nice. He knows we're all naughty, so he came to be nice in our place. And he trades places so that we can be treated as only his niceness deserved, and he was treated as our naughtiness deserved. And for that, he rewards us, not for our good behavior, not for our bad behavior, but for placing our faith in his, in his good behavior. And by living from a new identity, which fully hopes in his finished work, it is an act of grace. He's not opposed to effort, though. He's just opposed to earning. And you see this, Isaiah talks about this, Isaiah 64, 6. He's like, the, the rebellious, they need to repent of their bad works, but the religious, they need to repent of their good works because they're actually stained with ulterior motives. God, if I do this, you're going to owe me, and I'm going to put you in my debt. And it's like, if that wasn't the case, why would God go to all this trouble? Ever thought about that? And the answer is simple. It's because there was no other way. There was no other way. But the good news is that the lowly birth and the shed blood of Jesus was the light switch in the closet. It was God's way of saying that he is the only way to keep the lights on in our hearts and for eternity. Let me say something clear and direct to your heart right now. If you have been unable to sustain peace, to sustain joy, to sustain hope and love toward other people and toward God, that is a strong case that Christ has never flooded into your heart by faith. Because when he fills a heart, he gives you the fruit of that feeling, which is a sustained joy. It is the lights stay on. So what did he do? He came as the only way. Let me show this to you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. So what were we? We were disobedient. And Jesus' obedience is credited to us, and our disobedience is cast on him. It's called the great exchange. It's why Christ was born to die uh, uh, for the sons of earth, born to give us second, second birth. And he came to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Therefore, God has highly exalted him through his resurrection and ascension and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, Almighty God, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here's what I want you to see. Jesus was born in a cradle. He died on a cross and he has since been exalted with a crown. That's what Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is telling us. And I think it's such an easy time of the year to sentimentalize all of it, right? I mean, how about we just go Ricky Bobby and look at him as like sweet little six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus with his golden fleece diapers. That's my Jesus. That's like the Jesus that I like. It's easy to stop right there at the quaint nativity scene. Nothing wrong with that, but you got to move past that because while the place we get our peace from 
began with sweet little baby Jesus' birth. It is ultimately fulfilled through Christ, crucified, resurrected, and ascended as our guarantee of salvation. So here's a way that I would, I would explain it. Jesus' first breath came so his final breath could come. Jesus' first breath came so his final breath could come. I would submit you do not understand Bethlehem if you don't understand Calvary. Because what both Bethlehem and Calvary declare to creation, there is no other way than through Jesus' birth and by Jesus' blood that we can be rescued. And he's the only way. Two ways that he's the only way. First of all, he's the only way eternally. He's the only way eternally. Acts chapter 4 verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So let me talk to you about this unseen for a moment. Let me talk to you about the soul. We all have one. The soul is the eternal, central, immaterial part of your being. More than the part, it's actually the, the, the summation of your being. A lot of us think, well, we're, we're bodies with souls. No, uh, not exactly. We are souls with bodies. And every soul is set on a course for one of two eternal destinations. Renewal and resurrection forever with Jesus in heaven. And who gets that? It's those of us who would say, I'm ready to bow in humility now to the lordship of Jesus. In this life, he is my king. He is my rescuer. He is in charge. When he and I disagree, he's right, I'm wrong, I change, and that's joy. Humility now, bow now. The other destination is, is anguish forever in, in a literal place called hell. And those who find themselves in eternity in hell are the people who say, in this life, I'm going to reason my way beyond the gospel. I'm going to reject the gospel. I'm going to resist the lordship of Jesus. I'm not going to bow now in humility. And what Philippians 2 says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. You can bow in humility now or you can bow in humiliation later. And God doesn't want that. That's why he sent Jesus. That's what Christmas is all about. And so Romans 10, 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name, calls upon the name of this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, will be saved. Have you called upon his name for salvation? There is no other way. He's the only way eternally. He's the only way personally. You see, all of us here have at least one thing in common, personal problems. You got any problems? I know I've got my own fair share of problems. And some of you might say, right, rightfully so, I get this. Eternity is great. I don't want to miss out on that. But what does this mighty God have for me right now? How can he help me with the things that are like worrying me right now? And that's a good question. And I just want to say that years before Isaiah 9-6, God appeared to Moses, a member of the same nation as Isaiah calling him to return to Egypt to lead people out of slavery. And here's the problem. 
Moses had a lot of problems. <laughs> when God appears to him in this burning bush that's not destroyed, he starts to interact with Moses, and Moses is like, I've made some disastrous decisions. You got the wrong guy. I'm a failure. My people are in bondage. No one would ever listen to me. And God, in grace, doesn't give Moses some big pep talk. He just says, here's my name. That's all you need. Exodus three fourteen. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. In other words, belief and confidence in God's great, na- great name is what will bring resolution to your great needs. He says, my name is all you need. And notice how his name is the great I am, not the great I was. It's God's way of saying that his might is not relegated to the past nor limited to the far off future, but it is available in the present. You show up today and you said, I am not confident enough. The mighty God says, I am. You say, I am not capable enough. The mighty God says, I am. You say, I'm not faithful enough. The mighty God says, I am. You say, I'm not forgiving enough. The mighty God says, I am. Am. You say, I'm not healthy enough. The mighty God says, I am. You say, I'm not wealthy enough. The mighty God says, I am. Because all that you are not, he surely is. His name is all you need. Maybe you say, okay, I'm not, but right now I need. I, I need peace with God. He says, I am. I need victory over ad- addiction. He says, I am. I need freedom from condemnation. I am. I need material or financial provision. I am. I need restoration in some relationship. I am. What is the mighty God's message to the lowly this Christmas? It's this. All that you are not, I surely am. And all that you need, I can surely provide. And it's all found in my name. And this is why Jesus comes. And guess who he is? He's the God of Moses. He's the God of Isaiah. He's the God of creation. He reveals himself as the great I am. John 8, 12. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So notice how he doesn't say, go turn on the light with your own might. No, Jesus' invitation is just what we need. All who follow the light of Jesus' might are led out of darkness and into light, are led out of defeat and into victory. So what makes God so almighty? Well, it's because he came in a lowly way as the only way. And how do we respond to such a mighty God? We bring everything that we're not and everything that we need before him in faith. And what does it do? As, as, as the song we were singing earlier, we're about to sing this again, it makes us joyful and also triumphant. So if you bow your heads, I want to pray toward that end right now. Mighty God, there's so many things that we are not. But for everything that we're not, you surely are. There's so many things that we need. And for everything that we need, you can surely provide. So, Father, I would pray that your I amness would drive out our notness. That this would be personal for hearts. 
that all the things that we feel like we're not, I pray that we would see this picture of a mighty God this week, this year, the rest of our lives. And for all the things that we need, Lord, I just pray your provision. You're a mighty God. You're able, you're faithful, and I pray that you would provide as only you can. Thank you for coming in such a lowly way to get on the floor with us. Thank you for coming as the only way to make a way for us. We look to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.